Melissa Harrison here for our latest edition of the Religion Unplugged podcast. This week, we travel to Sri Lanka, where we are joined by one of the Media Project's board members, Vishal Arora, who is taking a deep dive to find out answers about the Sri Lanka Easter Day attacks. Vishal is talking with Nishan Demel. He is the executive director of Verite Research to get a deeper analysis of who's behind the attacks, what they may want, who or what they were targeting, and what this all means for South Asia's religious groups and stability. Let's listen in. You know, uh, in Sri Lanka, we have been um, vigilant about the nature of politics, uh, re- uh, political violence, as well as religious violence. And that has been an issue that we have been studying and researching and looking at data. And not just looking at the data, but understand, trying to understand the socio-political dynamics behind especially religious violence. And of course, political violence has a different kind of manifestation. Uh, with all that going on and all that we have seen and understood about the country, its uh, social dynamics, its religious dynamics, and its political dynamics, if you had asked me on Saturday morning, what is the probability of an Islamic group attacking Christian churches in Colombo, I would have put it close to zero. I would have said there is no chance. It was completely unforeseen uh, by most people. And even us, where we are supposed to be able to see things that uh, are not uh, foreseeable. Uh, and I think it took us completely by surprise. Uh, we did not anticipate it. And I think could not have anticipated it also. But of course, that, uh, that claim uh, is potentially contradicted by the intelligence-related documents that have come out afterwards. But I think that uh, I don't read it as a simple contradiction. I read it as a complex contradiction. Uh, I don't think it was foreseeable, uh, which for me, creates a real complex puzzle about, the, about those who foresaw it. Uh, to be able to foresee an attack uh, of this nature, which in many ways I think defies the logic of how one would have analyzed it, uh, requires a great deal more than analytical intelligence. Uh, it requires a certain level of uh, connection to perpetrators, which I think I find a little mystifying from my intelligence community. And who do you think was the target of uh, Mm. these attacks? Who was the target? Um, uh, I think at a superficial level, it is clear who paid the price and what the consequences were. Uh, But I think when people ask that question, uh, surely that's not what we're asking, okay? Uh, We are not simply asking who died. Uh, And I think it may be more helpful to ask the question, not who was the target, but what was the target? Because I think in any attack like this, the objectives, or any terrorist type attack, the objectives are disconnected from the subjects. Uh, on whom the violence is targeted. 
so the subjects were actually instrumental, uh, and the target is not a, not people or persons, but but something more symbolic or important. Uh, and the target here, I think, uh, on one hand, is for sure the economy, uh, because the the selection of high-profile hotels in Colombo uh, and the breakfast restaurants that are mostly frequented by tourists uh, is, is, is a clear targeting of foreign individuals in a way that would hugely uh, undermine confidence for investors, for foreigners who are involved uh, in interacting with Sri Lanka in an economic sense. These are the business hotels of the country. Uh, because many of these hotels also had uh, Easter branches. Actually, all of them, all three of them. I was scheduled to be at the Easter branch at Cinnamon Grand, which was one of the hotels that was targeted. Uh, if they had waited a few more hours, I would have been able to, you know, actually have a more first-hand <laughs> view of what went on. Um, I was fortunate that that didn't happen. Uh, so clearly, if, the, if it was a question of maximizing life lost to make a statement, then brunch time was when, when it could have been done. But what was targeted was the restaurant in which overnight guests usually come with bed and breakfast, uh, would be having breakfast. Uh, and that, I think, is an indication that there is a targeting of foreign nationals, which again connects to targeting the economy. I think the second thing that is targeted, and we can come back to this, um, is the Sri Lankan politics itself is targeted. Uh, because very definitely the attack has changed uh, the political discourse in a serious way. Uh, it has brought into question the political system and undermine confidence in the politics. Uh, and, and the reason I say this is, you know, it is not a single sporadic attack, right? Uh, or, or uh, you know, some one bomber going, setting off a bomb in a marketplace, you know, that kind of thing you can always say uh, doesn't affect the whole political system. This was perhaps the most coordinated, sophisticated uh, attack on civilian uh, targets that we have seen in Asia, I would say. Okay, uh, so it is uh, an extremely interesting in terms of the sophistication, the coordination over a short period of time, over a large geography. Uh, a large number of attacks that take place. So the target, I think, uh, has a political dimension because the moment it happens also, there is a leak that tells you the government knew and did that. Uh, the combination of events certainly, I think, targets the economy and targets the politics uh, in a way that I will come back to later as to what is the impact on, on the politics and the state as a consequence here. So I think this question that also comes into play in trying to understand and explain what happened is um, how does general communal attention that exists in Sri Lanka uh, 
both uh, fit in as a cause and what is the consequence on that tension. Uh, if I try to think through that, I think that um, we have a long history in Sri Lanka of communal tension and violence. It takes an ethnic form and a religious form. Uh, and over the course of uh, post-independence history since 1948, uh, we have seen uh, both chronic and acute versions of both. Uh, in Sri Lanka, between the acute and the chronic forms of violence, uh, that uh, target, especially in terms of religious nature, uh, but, it, but I don't need to recap, I think, uh, today the history of ethnic uh, violence that we've had. However, what's interesting in Sri Lanka is that uh, after the end of the war, the ethnic war, uh, that was between representatives of the Tamil people and the Sri Lankan state, that was seen as representing the singular people, uh, what you found was a very new uh, development of tensions between the Sinhala Buddhists and the Muslims. I say very new because at the, in the nature and level in which it re-emerged was quite new. If you go back to 1915, you, you, know, you have a record of uh, tensions and violence between Buddhists and Muslims and that has a lot written about it. But the way in which it emerged after 2010 uh, was quite new for Sri Lanka and quite unexpected. It was really, um, it, it, it had some elements of similarity to what we see in Myanmar and it was Buddhist uh, you know, leaders uh, and institutions borrowing, in a sense, some of the same attitudes and approaches uh, in, in positioning hostility towards the Muslims uh, within Sri Lanka. <clears throat> so I think that the, the Muslims have become in Sri Lanka, you know, they have always been the Jews, but, uh, but these movements have now moved into Nazi territory with regard to the Muslims. Uh, and we have seen some very, very serious violence against the Muslims uh, that was organized at a communal plus level uh, with, with at least tacit, you know, uh, tacit assistance from the state, but simply by inaction to prevent it, because these have gone on for days. Uh, the last uh, occurrence that happened in February in 2018 uh, had over 200 establishments uh, vandalized or destroyed. Uh, including houses in Kendi. Uh, so, and much of the rhetoric around the incitements to violence in that period have been around positioning the Islam and Muslim people as a threat. So, of course, in the current climate, uh, or the post, uh, aftermath of what has happened, uh, those claims suddenly look like they have been vindicated, which is very unfortunate because those claims actually were fueling something extremely destructive uh, and negative in Sri Lankan society. Uh, but the purveyors of those claims now stand to gain 
by the actions that have taken place. Uh, there is no intelligent Muslim organization or supporters of Muslims who could have wanted that to happen. Uh, and, uh, and we must think of them as, as, as really acting unintelligently uh, in this uh, particular situation uh, in terms of Muslim interests, uh, whatever took place. So I think that is, uh, and, 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 and right now, uh, what you see is that, of course, the attack did not target Buddhist places. Um, so that does present, uh, if you like, um, a puzzle of sorts. Because if the axis of communal tension in Sri Lanka for the Muslims was Buddhists, and these very groups that we have spoken about and been come up in the news as being responsible have been previously identified as responsible in trying to remove or vandalize Buddhist statues in Mavanala area. So they also seem to have potentially a history or connection to expressing some level of antagonism against uh, the hegemony of the Buddhist establishment. Uh, and yet the targets chosen are explicitly not Buddhists, they are Christian. And the thing is that Muslims and Christians in Sri Lanka share a common sense of being a little besieged. While the Muslims, it is new and more acute in the last few years. For the Christians, this is a chronic, occasionally acute, long-standing problem that goes back a good 30 years since the 1980s. And I called up the National uh, Christian Evangelical Alliance yesterday uh, and asked them, because they keep a track of violence, uh, how many incidents they had recorded of religious violence against Christian institutions since 2015, after the change in government when things were thought to have become a great deal better. The number they gave me was 400 uh, in three years and three months. Uh, so that is a very significant number of attacks uh, of some nature uh, that, of course, we have to study to classify you know, how serious each one was, but the recorded number of religious violence cases fitting a uh, you know, well-thought-out definition uh, turns out to be 400. So I think that, um, I think that in many ways, this kind of action did also bring sympathy to the Christians from the Buddhists. Uh, there was a remarkably positive uh, uh, speaking up that took place from Buddhist leaders, uh, from leaders, from political leaders, from leaders of Muslim leaders, and even Christian leaders. Uh, I think that they expressed a great deal of solidarity. Uh, people were asked to, you know, empathize uh, with with the grief, uh, with the suffering, uh, and what you saw in the aftermath. If anything, I think. Uh, reduce the tension between the Christians and the Buddhists because there was a sense of you know, recognizing the victimhood of the Christians in this scenario. And that, that was a very positive thing that we saw on television and I think was intentionally done and led by leaders of all communities and religions. Uh, uh, however, what you also see uh, currently is this idea that 
that Sinhalese people could potentially now have revenge attacks on ordinary Muslim people because the attackers, as you know, were identified as Muslims. This to me is quite strange. Um, so I got an email today from a Chilean friend of mine who's living um, uh, outside the country. And she gave me a, a detailed story of a, of a Pakistani refugee in Sri Lanka who found his house surrounded uh, and he was attacked. Uh, and the security forces watched and protected his life, but didn't stop him from being beaten up thoroughly. Uh, and then he had to leave his house after that. And she said, Nishan, when there are attacks by Muslim people in the UK, in France, we never hear of such stories. Now, why is it that in your country, uh, these things can happen? Are you all less educated? <laughs> or is there some political you know, manipulation of people's emotions uh, that is making this happen? Um, I think that's, that's a very serious question uh, because uh, we, as South Asians, I think, not just as Sri Lankans, this is true perhaps even for Indians uh, and others in South Asia, we take a, a, a sort of a brutishness of, of the mob, uh, of a social mob for granted, uh, which we don't actually do in Western societies. It is not taken for granted that people should get up and, 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 and enact violence against their neighbors and others uh, in the way that has been almost assumed as a risk in South Asia and in Sri Lanka. And I, I, I find that quite disappointing. Uh, I want to believe in a society and in a country in which ordinary people, uh, the brutish imperative isn't a fixed assumption about how ordinary people would respond to calamities of this nature. So I think the general community tension in terms of whether Muslim people are feeling safe is, I think, uh, in, has significantly moved in a negative direction. There are people at my own organization, Verity Research, uh, that are today left their houses because they live near mosques and they don't want to be, they're too scared to live there. Uh, and they feel that there's a danger of being attacked. Uh, and, have, and are taking refuge in other places. Uh, that is, to me, an extremely disappointing, uh, tells me an extremely disappointing, you know, simple truth with a simple T about our society as well uh, that needs to be, I think, addressed. In fact, tomorrow is the first Juma, first Friday mm. since the attack. Mm. And Muslims have been told not to go to mosque. Yeah, yeah. So in fact, the police mm -hmm. chief here has also issued a warning that there is a... Possibility. It's the brutishness imperative. Yeah. yeah. Police are not yeah. threatening to attack exactly. the mosques. Exactly. But people are... And, and how is a human being who goes and attacks a mosque any better than that bomber? Right. Uh, for me, that is really surprising that we take this for granted. But I think it is it is made possible by our own tacit acceptance of that possibility. Uh, it is when you believe that a drunkard is you know prone to beat up his wife that the drunk man uh, the, in a society that believes that that's possible the, the drunkards attack their beat up their wives. Yeah. 
<laughs> much more. So it's not drinking itself. It is the social consent uh, and tacitly that comes from saying that is understandable within courts that makes that possible. It is that understanding that we give it in our societies, I think that also makes it a reality. Uh, we, we need to be more surprised and then it would be less possible. Mm -hmm. And why do you think of all the places, all the countries in the world or in Asia, why Sri Lanka? I mean, I'm here, of course, presuming that there was an international terror organization so I think um, uh, when when under, trying to understand the events and what happened, uh, and when I say that it was not foreseeable and we didn't foresee it. One of the things that uh, really is difficult to understand is why Sri Lanka. Uh, so I would put it another way. I would say there are two layers of difficulty in terms of understanding the events. Uh, one is why Sri Lanka and why the Catholic Church or the, or the church, Christian church. I think the reason these questions become uh, very difficult to make sense of or have to have good answers is because of the assumption we make that this is an ISIS. I don't know how you people say IS, Daesh, whatever. But, uh, but that there is an international terror network at play uh, that logically does not have Sri Lanka on its sides. And there is you know, that, that, that rationality is hard to connect. And within Sri Lanka, certainly does not have the Christians in their sights. Uh, and I think the question of why Sri Lanka becomes, um, lacks a good explanation, honestly, uh, on the narrative and explanations that we have for who is behind these attacks. I think there's no doubt that the people conducting the attacks are part of a radicalized Muslim group within Sri Lanka. I don't think uh, that, that, that we lack evidence for that conclusion. Uh, but I think um, the more difficult question um, is really not just about you know, the people who conducted the attack, but the selection of targets and what is driving that uh, and, and why Sri Lanka. So honestly, I cannot make sense of why ISIS would direct Sri Lanka as a target and why, if so, they would direct within Sri Lanka the Christians as a target. Even if you make sense of the hotels, uh, I don't think we can make sense of the church attacks. Uh, so I think um, looking at the aftermath of uh, what has taken place, um, we have to now ask what are the consequences. Uh, we have uh, talked about the consequences in terms of communal uh, relationships, uh, but I think it's also important to talk about the consequences in terms of the state and citizen relationship. Uh, the consequence on the state and citizen relationship 
I think uh, can be evaluated in two ways. Uh, one is uh, how does this impact uh, the state's you know, immediate uh, ability to control the citizen? But secondly, how does it also shape then the kind of state that the citizen is asking for or concerned about? The, the most significant and the most negative shift that I see that's emerging as a consequence is that the discourse that we had and was growing ever since especially 2014 about the importance of improving governance, of reducing corruption, of uh, expanding the scope of our democracy. These conversations have suddenly uh, paled and almost visibly into a lower order priority set of questions. And what we have done is resurfaced uh, and brought to the fore. So if you've said, in a sense, it's a switching of the background and the foreground. Uh, we have brought back to the foreground the questions of national security and safety, which were in the foreground during the years of war, all the way up to 2010, even 11, in the immediate aftermath of the war. And what happened as the country experienced more and more peace was that the national security and safety questions began to lose their salience and the, the governance, democracy, uh, and uh, corruption questions emerged into the foreground in, 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 in great style in January 2015. Uh, but they were in competition then with the national security and safety questions. So if you analyze the single media in 2014, there was this very significant debate about whether we had to think about security and safety first, or we had to think about corruption and governance first. And as 2014 progressed, the balance shifted to corruption and governance as being the more important concern. Uh, and the government then always also manufactured, you know, uh, leaks of information about a new terrorist threat, the reemergence of the LTTE, bombs found in different places. I'm not saying they were false, but certainly the, the in engineering them into the, you know, people's uh, information set. Uh, and the discourse um, was part of trying to maintain the politics of security, safety as being still the most important uh, dominant concern for society. But that battle was lost and corruption uh, especially emerged as the dominant concern for society. But I think this event in one fell sweep has switched the foreground and background once again. Uh, and today you hear people saying, and I was at a meeting in the morning, who cares about democracy and you know, forget about corruption, we want security. And we want back those who can give us security. And I think when people don't voice it like that, that, that sense, uh, there's an overwhelming way in which that sense uh, has taken over because these attacks uh, were of a nature to completely change the sense of political salience of of these two sets of questions uh, for people. So uh, I think uh, while it does strengthen the state and its ability to control, uh, I'm not necessarily seeing that as the 
immediate risk because the political configuration that you have today uh, is of course very concerned to control, uh, to use uh, means of control. So we've had movements to bring counterterrorism legislation that's very draconian and it has been resisted by civil society. Uh, we've had movements to bring uh, uh, regulation of media that we felt were very draconian uh, and unnecessary that have been resisted uh, also by think tanks and others like us. Uh, uh, because we feel that, uh, you know, in, especially in South Asia and in Sri Lanka, that we must be careful not to give the state a toolkit for suppression. And often the, the old toolkit was, uh, was more um, flagrantly uh, unlawful. Uh, it used uh, extrajudicial violence uh, and, uh, and means that were connected to just political thuggery. Uh, but the new, you know, the emerging toolkit, I think in societies like ours, uses the law itself selectively applied, uh, a law that gives uh, too much discretion uh, as a toolkit for suppressing political dissent. And we have been very concerned for keeping that at bay. So I think there is a risk of losing uh, ground on the ability to resist some of that legislation and some of those regulations. Uh, but that risk goes beyond the immediate risk. It, there's a greater risk in changing the political configuration to elect people who do not believe at all on the restraints uh, of governance that, that, that brought this government into power. And certainly those who feel that national security and lack of restraint uh, for those in power should be the way in which we should have leadership uh, have their hands strengthened today by the events that happened. So I think currently, in trying to understand who could be behind it, there have been, uh, we've heard several theories at play. Um, people have talked about, you know, this, I think all these theories have at the root of it, uh, Islamic um, militant groups. Uh, and, um, and, and of course, then they try to ascribe motive, okay? So I think the fact that there was a, a Sri Lankan a Muslim uh, individuals uh, and that they would have been part of a movement uh, of Muslim people that were being in some way radicalized, uh, if I can use that term and it means something, uh, I think there is clear evidence for that, and I said that before, that, that we know that the individuals involved were Muslim, that they were connected to an organization that worked on some sense of radicalized thinking and understanding. I think on the positive side, uh, what you have seen is that uh, the, the Sri Lankan capacity to pull back from the brink. Uh, so I think one of the fascinating things about Sri Lanka is that uh, our society is capable, uh, where, you know, has almost a talent for to getting to the edge of the precipice and then stepping back.
and then going there again <laughs> and doing so repeatedly. And so in a time of acute crisis, we tend to figure out uh, how to do things right a little better. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm very heartened by the way in which, uh, you know, leaders of our communities and enormously Buddhist priests. So you don't hear Nanasara in this time. He's not getting coverage. Uh, but he's getting coverage is Buddhist monks who are very clear that this was wrong, uh, the church was wrong, and sitting alongside Muslim leaders who are saying, we are not a part of this. We didn't say you should, this should happen. We have warned about it. Uh, this doesn't represent us. And people saying, you know, that uh, a group of Muslims who committed violence does not represent an ethnic community, and that would be absurd. Uh, so I, I think it would be too early to think that Buddhist fundamentalism is going to be heightened, because to some extent, I think there is a sensibility in society that also sees what I'm saying, that there is a vicious cycle, and that we must not keep treading down, uh, we must not keep turning uh, around in that circle. Uh, and, and there is a certain social implicit sanity, I think, that kicks in uh, to recognize that, uh, that the country has to pull back and the event was momentous enough. So it would be too early to call uh, how this is going to play out, uh, right? It could play out negatively for the Buddhist extreme rhetoric because when it reemerges, it can well be identified as this is what this is the, precisely the kind of thing we don't want uh, because now we can see down that road and see where it takes us. Uh, and it's almost like the, uh, you know, we were walking down a path and, and a train from the future came, you know, and crashed into you, uh, reminding you what's at the end of that path. Uh, and then you have to stop and take stock. Uh, and I hope that is what has happened, uh, that we can now take stock and say that was the wrong path and we need to find another one. Uh, that's my hope. I think uh, we have to work in that direction. Once again, we've been listening to a fascinating interview between Ashan Demel, the executive director of Verite Research, and our own TMP board member, Vishal Arora, going deeper on the analysis of the recent Easter attacks in Sri Lanka. For the full audio clip and transcript of this interview, you can find it on our website at religionunplugged.com.